launched a tech company. Pop and Suki was flying out of control with Lady Gaga, Beyonce, every single person in the world wearing Pop and Suki bags. And at the same time, probably managing my own mental health crisis. Yeah. So it's been a full on decade. Wow. And now we've. I'm surprised we've got you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Happy Millionaire, a show about how to make profit with a positive impact and stay happy along the way. So Poppy Jamie's been on my podcast. She's an entrepreneur. She's a media expert. She's been a TV presenter. She's done multiple different exciting goods, jewelry, Pop and Suki, and uh, she's also starting something new. But the one thing that I really wanted Poppy to come and share with us today are her techniques and tactics for combining happiness with the entrepreneurial journey that I think she does so well and so vulnerably as well on her podcast. So I'm excited. Um, yeah. Why don't you give us a sort of like a TLDR of like the arc of your career and, and how that all started? So I started TV presenting when I was 19 years old and I was the youngest entertainment reporter at ITN. And it was an insane early 20s, late teens, every single person on the showbiz circuit, I would interview them and I would be the high-pitched, hyperactive reporter <laughs> and everything would go wrong. It, everybody would say... I was Bridget Jones. And it was sadly <laughs> quite true. Despite how hard I tried, despite how much preparation I would give, it would always, and I'm not sure if I can swear, slightly fuck up. And so there was this one interview and I got, it was my first big one. And I'd only been asked to interview people that nobody really wanted to interview, which was, you know, somebody who left Big Brother five oh, years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, finally, this was a goodie. Jude Law. Oh, Jude wow. Law. Wow. Massive, yeah, yeah. massive. Did he still have hair at this point? I don't remember. I just remember him being very good looking. So, and it was funny because somebody brought this interview up to me three days ago and I went to go to YouTube to look, watch the video and I couldn't believe it was a decade ago. So 10 years ago, there I am walking into this interview with Jude Law and I'm so overexcited. I'm, oh my God, it's just so good to meet you. He thinks I'm a competition winner. I'm that excited. And so I'm kind of, no, no, I'm here for my ITV. You know, you know like, honestly, I promise you I'm like reputable. And I'm anyway, shaking his hand furiously and I go to sit back down on my chair and I completely miss the seat. No. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I go flying and I'm lying on the floor and I'm wearing this tiny mini skirt, you know, trying to kind of, you know, look professional, obviously clearly unprofessional, and half a butt cheek is out. I mean, just the whole thing is just absolutely mortifying. The, the cameramen are shaking with laughter. The PR can't get her breath. And I have to try and continue to do this interview while in my in my head, I'm like, you've just got fired. You've just got fired. Yeah, you've yeah. just got fired. You've just got fired. And I thought, well, there's only two things I can do right now. I can cry or I can just laugh yeah. because... This is a disaster. And I get hysterical giggles. And when I get them, it, there's no end to it. So I start getting the hysterical giggles. And I'm trying to get this interview out. And it doesn't. Anyway, it becomes a viral interview. Suddenly, every oh, wow. single person I, I possibly know has seen Poppy's fail in front of Jude Law. And, you know, people came up to me on the street. It was like, what? oh, my God, you're the girl that fell off the chair in front of Jude Law. And I'm like, oh, God, is this what I'm going to be known for forever? So embarrassing. So. I decided to move to America 
because that clearly sounds like the logical next step. And um, <laughs> while I was in LA, long story short, launched the first TV show on Snapchat, which was pretty much the only TV show you could watch on Snapchat on a Saturday. And so we had millions of people watching it because they were really, at the time, Evan and the team, they were very small at Snapchat. This is when they probably had two rooms, one being on Venice Beach and another one. And, you know, I remember meeting Evan on my first day and they were just testing. Snapchat were like, does television shows work on the app? Anyway, it exploded the show. This led me to then realizing how many people were suffering from stress and anxiety because I used to get thousands upon thousands of messages from people watching the show, just saying, I'm feeling really stressed, I'm feeling really anxious. And this led me to think, what do you do if you're stressed and anxious back in 2014? Where do you go? There was nowhere to go. There was no help. There was no conversation about it. Nobody was talking about it over the dinner table. Certainly nobody was talking about it in the press, about the kind of mental health epidemic that we were in. And it goes back to my mum. I thought, well, my mum's a psychotherapist. Could I put my mum in an app? I remember being told the most successful apps were the ones that behaved like parents. Uber could take you to school. Postmates or Deliveroo can bring you food. And so if you look at all these, you know, ones that we kind of go to most, and I thought, but who looks after your emotional health? Who looks after you like a parent does and says, let's talk about your stress? And so that's what Happy Not Perfect. What year was this? This is 2015, 2014. Oh, wow. so this is really yeah, early in like the, early. Like the mental health yeah, yeah. movement. We this were one early. of the first apps to ever gamify mental health. I looked at what else is there and Calm was tiny, tiny, tiny. Yeah, it was just very one, small. one meditation a day. And I yeah. thought, well, I love meditating, so maybe I'll go and work with Calm. And then I ended up being like, let's just create this in a slightly different way. And that was Happy Not Perfect. And so I grew Happy Not Perfect from 2015, had to persuade investors that mental health was a thing, had to persuade everything. I mean, it was exhausting. It was three years of saying this is important. This is important. Yeah, yeah. No one believed in it. Nobody believed yeah. in it. And if anything, people didn't want to talk about it. I got mm. I had investors say, can we just change the words on your deck? You take out mental health. It's a bit scary. Can we call that happiness? And so finally raised the money, built my tech team. And we launched in 2018 and then suddenly the world changed. Mm. It was overnight. This became a conversation and wrote the book. And then in between that, I set up a fashion company called Pop and Suki with my best friend, Suki Waterhouse. I mean, Pop and Suki was sold in, oh my God, must be over like 12 different countries. Wow. Net-a-Porte, we launched in China. We took over an entire Shanghai shopping mall. I mean, my life in 2018 was so mental. I was launched a tech company. Pop and Suki was flying out of control with Lady Gaga, Beyonce, every single person in the world wearing Pop and Suki bags. And at the same time, probably managing my own mental health crisis. Yeah. So it's been a full on decade. Wow. And now we've... I'm surprised we've got you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine like you going to pitch to investors with your current career, your non-tech founder, you have an idea that's in a, a niche that no one's even really talking about. How on earth did you convince early people to invest in you as a founder and also generate the team itself? Great question. I actually posted this um, when I was announcing the acquisition. I posted my first deck oh, so. and it was so basic. A, I really noticed within a year and a half how much that deck mm. evolved. So 
if for anyone writing their first decks, be kind to yourself and know that it is a constant, iterable journey, if that's a word. But I remember going home. I was living in LA, so I flew back to London and I lived with my brother at the time. And it was 10 p.m. at night, but he always goes to bed at 9 p.m. Always has. Very <laughs> odd. And so I remember kind of going into his room to wake him up because this idea was, and I think you've got to be that passionate about the idea that you are willing to wake up your brother who likes to go to bed at nine <laughs> and you're willing to wake him up at 10 just to tell him. But I became obsessed. And that's what I do with all my businesses. It is becomes a complete obsession that gives me so much joy to think about and I'm willing to sacrifice for it. And I did. I sacrificed my television career for this company because every investor said, mm, okay, but you're not going to carry on with the TV stuff, are you? In a way, that was a bit short-sighted, actually, because as we all know, a bigger platform helps you get a better CAC. But I was, if they wanted me to do that, I was willing. And I remember going in and saying, I've got this idea. And he said, oh, I think I met someone who can design some app screens. And that was the end of the conversation. Woke up to an email in my inbox. And my brother's very efficient. He'd introduced me to a random guy that he'd met completely randomly that he had learned who built wireframes just yeah, yeah. app designs mm. and I don't think I realized how valuable designers are mm. especially when you're building tech companies mm. and because apps in, in apps in particular yeah. pre-code it's not expensive yeah. well it's not as expensive as making mistakes with code yeah I think that there's no time like the present. You know, I call this guy up saying, let's meet this evening. And again, I think you need that kind of momentum when you're setting up a company. Every hour should be so valuable to you that you don't want to miss it. And so I met the guy, didn't even care about his qualifications because I just said, can you design some app screens? He said, yes. I said, great, we're off. Again, I think you can waste time finding the right person yeah. for you. But I just knew I needed to get to my next step. And my next step was to show uncreative investors what this could look like in a physical form rather mm. than just in my head mm. explaining why it's important so we sat I remember we sat down for a day and I said okay and I'd done the research and I kind of knew what I wanted and I had drawn it out literally on the kind of a back of an, a mm. napkin that yeah, sort yeah. of vibe and he created some really basic wireframes for me to then be able to show investors, if you clicked here, this is what the journey would be like. Again, once we'd raised an investment, this, my app eventually looked nothing like this <laughs> yeah, first yeah, version. Hopefully a lot better. <laughs> a lot, a lot better. <laughs> yeah. But the point was, I knew I had to get as far as I possibly could with my own money, which yeah. I had none of. Mm. I think this entire phase cost me £3,000. £3,000? Yeah. Is that all you spent to get? All I spent to get to wow. the point where I could get investment. You know, I do think you can get very far on a small amount yeah. in yeah. the early days, especially when you're working with other young people mm. that are passionate like you are. And then it was just a game of networking and just being obsessed on email and emailing every single person I possibly could and also speaking to really unusual people you don't think could help you yeah. and how it really ended up being was I was doing a TV show at the time and I started talking to my producer of the TV show and he said well I'll loan you the first 50,000 yeah. to be able to get you on your way brilliant and then after that my 
best friend in LA had a music manager who had just met a tech investor. And it was just through the most unlikely connections because I don't believe that there's value in an idea. I tell everybody my ideas yeah. all the time yeah. because I think, A, they're the good, the good feedback or they can introduce you to your next jigsaw puzzle piece. Yeah. And I see building companies like Jigsaws, everybody's looking for a piece that they need to complete their jigsaw. Mm. So every, you need to tell everybody about your jigsaw in yeah. case they've got the, the secret piece that you're missing. And then they introduced me to my main investors. And then from that, I'd raised the first half a million. And after that, I was able to raise, you know, a few million after that quite quickly based on the legitimacy my first investors had given me. And then suddenly the space started bubbling. So it was kind of slow, 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 slow. And then it went quickly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so after you had that first investment, you launched your first product when? So this is when also it all went a bit wrong at the okay. same time too. Yes, I raised investment. I raised it at terrible terms. Mm-hmm. And look, the market's not very good right now. So if anyone's trying to raise right now, I yeah. do think that people are taking less favorable terms than mm-hmm. if you're raising maybe two years ago. So for first-time founders especially, I don't think you are in the seat of telling people exactly what you want to be investing on. But I invested on really terrible terms. Mm. And so these were when some of my mistakes started to show and I started to pay for them years later. I remember one investor calling me up saying, because at this point, I gave away 50% of my company on day one. It's pretty bad. Mm. I was a female founder in 2015. Mm. They didn't exist. All of these podcasts and we're talking about that didn't exist. There was no guidebook. There was nothing out there. raising the US or the UK or both? Both. Both. It was a UK company, but it was US investors. And then we ended up having a top company in the UK and then a subsidiary in the US. But I remember one investor, even when I had 50%, I remember one investor saying, you know, Poppy, we feel really uncomfortable with you having so much of the company. What? (laughs) And he said, uh, he used the example, he said, well, The founder of, um, it was a YouTuber at the time, and she set up a company uh, sending out samples. Okay. And he said, well, she only owns 5% of her company, so we feel all very uncomfortable with you owning 50%. So I suggest that you write to the board and tell everyone that you want to give me another 3%. And I remember being so shocked and not really knowing what to say because he was a really big voice on the board. Mm. And I think at the time I probably said, oh, okay, well, probably was just polite back. And afterwards I thought it felt actually that was a bit unfair. I thought Mm. I've already given you 50% for not that much money and you've already taken away so much control of my company, but okay. And basically at the next board meeting, I hadn't given him the extra equity yet and he screamed at me and he's like what have you done since the last meeting and I was just waiting for the tech to be built there was nothing I you know of course I was working every single day on it but you can't if the tech team said this is the sprint it's very difficult to speed them up I mean I was hysterically crying for three Mm, days afterwards and the only reason he he was so rude to me and screaming at me so much in this meeting is because I hadn't given him the equity and I remember calling my parents saying I'm just gonna have to give him the equity because I can't live life Mm. like with him being like this to me Mm. in a way my life is gonna be easier if I just give it to him Mm. 
And my parents were like, that's ridiculous, Poppy. You shouldn't have to do this. You shouldn't have to do this. And I said, but at this point, I'm already in too far. I've already taken other investors who I really like, I really respect. I'd be now screwing over them if I left. Mm. I'm going to have to endure this. So this is my life. I just want to make it easier for myself. So I'm just going to give them the equity. And I did. These stories happen and they're hidden i'm so happy and appreciative that you're sharing it because yeah i've heard stories like this and hearing it from you and i think the greed sometimes in investors and this is sometimes what i do fear in the industry is that there is this element of greed which is very scary and dangerous for everyone's mental health and i get it it's like basically a big pyramid scheme what happens in investing is that these investors have got lps underneath them they've got a lot of pressure so they're feeling pressure from them to deliver so then sometimes I feel bad for these investors who are screaming and got their own mental health and then they're taking out on entrepreneurs sometimes and there is this vicious selection of investors that um you know can cr- like create these situations which are just totally unfair and unneeded and um for you to have gone through that it's just it's sad and I guess one of the hopeful items in this is that you did have this mental health experience and i know you even got your method on the flexible thinking so was that stuff helping you because now all of the great things that you've learned on like through your journey did you find those helping you in these tough times because it's really hard sometimes in life like i know what to do but this is one of the hardest moments this is the big test and how did you cope in that and did those methods help you in i'm going to interrupt this for just one second me and jay love seeing your reviews but we wanted to go a step further and let you have the chance to ask us some questions on the pod right here if you go to happymillionaire.club there's a microphone in the bottom right corner click that tell us who you are and ask for anything you like the best ones will be played on the show in a couple of months let's see what you've got yeah i mean put it this way i don't think anything I have been through has been as difficult as building a company. I almost would find that so ridiculous to say because on the surface, how hard can it be? And I think the entrepreneur journey or any, and and, and I generally think mental health in the workplace, whether you're not, it's not your own company or just in a workplace, it's a hugely under-discussed topic because I think we've become much better at talking about how our childhood has affected our mental health But actually, adult mental health is hugely impacted by the environments they're in on a day-to-day basis, and often we're trapped in them. And again, that's a horrible word to use, trapped, and it's a horrible word to think that we are trapped in our jobs. But being brutally honest, we are. You know, we've got mortgages to pay or rents to pay. So, you know, it takes a lot of manoeuvring to course correct, even to change jobs, or especially when you set up a company... (laughs) You are in that company Mm. until one of two things. You get bored or, God forbid, you go bankrupt or you go public. Mm. They're they're your three realities. (laughs) Or you step aside. Or you step aside. But especially if you have investors that you really respect, which I did with Happy Not Perfect, I had people I truly loved. And maybe I took my fiduciary duty too seriously, but I was like, I'm going to get these people's... I want to be successful for them. I want to be the right horse that they've backed. There's a lot of pressure you put on yourself, the environment you put in. And so the flexible thinking method that I write about in my book was life-saving. When I talk about mental health and things that have helped me, it has been the difference between me being in this seat and maybe not even being here. It was that bad at one point, Mm. you know? It was the things that I prioritized and I write about this in my book, but 
dancing in many ways saved my life. When I found this dance studio in New York where I was building the company, I remember going in and just bursting into tears for this entire class because I think we we forget how much we're hunched over a desk and we're, even if we're cycling, right, we're hunched over still. Mm. And it was the first class that kind of like opened my body up and, you know, opened my chest and asked me to like raise my hands above my head. Actions that we do as children and they suddenly get less and less and less as we go through our life. So dancing was, connecting to my body was probably the biggest change in all of this. So probably we've talked about this flexible thinking method. I wonder if you can distill exactly what that means. Flexible thinking is about learning to think bendy. And what I mean by that is I once heard a quote by Marion Williamson that said, a miracle is just a shift in perspective. And often the grass can be so green, but we're so focused on the one tiny place in the garden that is rotten that we are unable to look around or change our perspective, change our mood. And so flexible thinking is a group of science-backed tools from users behavioral science to CBT to ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, to be able to remold and rewire our brains so we have the power and the capacity to constantly relook, modify our response to the world. I often think that, you know, we don't have sometimes a choice to be happy but we have a choice to be kind to ourselves and so it teaches you how to do that in a really easy four-step method that's sick awesome that's awesome it's kind of unfashionable to say from a position of privilege or perceived privilege because you know we've all got jobs we've all got income we've all got platforms and then like if you start talking about flexible thinking on social media and, and you know in public domains it's like well it's easy for you to say because you've got xyz so yeah like communicating it in a way that is compassionate, I think is something that you do really well. Thank you so much. I think, you know, when I developed the flexible thinking method, it was really, really in quite tricky times. Mm. And I was feeling really under pressure in every aspect of my life. And at the basis of flexible thinking is that it doesn't cost anything. You know, to connect with our body, which is the first step, doesn't cost anything. To do five star jumps and go for a walk in the morning and to connect truly to how we feel, that is a skill and a step away from what we're used to doing, which is suppressing or distracting and pretending it's not really going on or ignoring the pain that we're feeling. Getting curious costs nothing. Just to ask, is this true? Is my inner critic true in what it's telling me? Or how can I look at this differently? Step three being compassion. Again, costs nothing to be kind to ourselves, And yet when we're kind to ourselves, as Dr. Rupi, you'll know very well, our whole body changes. The way that, you know, our immune system is reacting to life. When we're kind to ourselves, we massively deregulate the nervous system so we can move into that rest and relax system. And if we know stress equals not the best decisions and we include a little space, which is pause, to connect, to get kind and to focus on what actually matters in life and then respond to life, we create a different reality for ourselves. Um, that was the main point of flexible thinking is to step away from reacting to life. And so when we are in tough times, when the economy and we're reading the news and it just seems like the end of the world, we can stay in that state of alert, everything's going wrong, but it's not going to help us. We all have to learn to take a beat, to pause and to make different decisions. 
because this is why I find the whole manifesting world a little bit controversial because what makes your future is the decisions you make in the present. Why are we not teaching ourselves to make better decisions in the present? Because I can guarantee that will create a different future and a future you more want to live in. I think it's important to have friends that don't value you yeah. for what you do. That's a good one, yeah, yeah. It's meeting up for dinner and realising that you probably didn't speak about work once, but you were engaging in other things, whether it's the cinema or whether it's just having a joke, whether it's just letting your hair down in some way, shape or form, and them still loving you just as much afterwards. It's interesting you're talking about like creating space in between yourself and the company. That's basically what I'm going through at the moment as well. I'm trying to create that divide between the doctor's kitchen and Dr. Rupee and just Rupee, the person, the husband, the friend, the, you know, the, the advisor that's outside of, of business related work. I find myself talking shop quite a bit and I have to sort of schedule in time where I'm like, oh no, we're just going to go to the gym or we're going to go climbing or we're just going to go out for dinner and not have to talk about work stuff, even though I really want to talk about work mm. all the time. But yeah, that's super interesting. It's hard, right? But I keep this attitude of like serving. So I'm here, like I separate from everything and I'm just here to serve all of these people and projects. And that way I've kept my gap. So that's really helped me. So whenever I would think about like the investments, if an entrepreneur calls me, yes, I'm part of it, but I'll say, no, I'm there to serve them. Or, you know, whenever you call me up again, it's to serve my friends. So it's like, I, that's it. That's my hack to keep. Yeah. So I just feel like, you know, I'm there to support all of these and none of them are mine. That was really hard though, because again, it was my identity, but that was the only way I could get out of it. I fully agree with that. Mm. And then it also, that also led me into trouble too. Okay. Because the whole reason I set up Happy Not Perfect was because I only did it out of service to other mm. people's mental health. It was like I'm setting up this company. And so I actually killed myself because I was just wanted to be in service. So when I was being bullied or when I was being terrorized, you know, I almost kind of started playing the martyr. Like, I'm going to take this because I am serving other people. And that's probably what kept me going for so long, in all honesty, is being of service. But I learned almost going into spiritual flight. That is also an escapist tool. I actually had to come down from spiritual flight just to face my reality of what was huge wounds. And I needed just to nourish them and nurture them with just some of the basics. So I think it's like everything in moderation, it sounds like that really works for you. And I think maybe the nature of the company, because it was around serving people with mental health, and like, and I was receiving so many messages every single day saying, this app has changed my life. This app has stopped me from committing suicide. I don't know what I've done without this app. And so even more and more and more, this element, I need to be in service. Yeah, like yeah. their well-being is more yeah. important than mine. Like it's okay if I suffer because other people are benefiting and that's okay. And this is where I find studying Kabbalah really helpful, which is an ancient spirituality. It's an ancient form of Judaism for the last 10 years. And I have a, a teacher called Marcus who always tells me to lean into what I find most uncomfortable. I find it more comfortable being in service, being a martyr. I find that easy, actually. To me, that's an easy way to live life. Classic people pleaser. Classic, classic <laughs> yeah, people yeah, pleaser. Yeah, yeah. So for me to kind of move into what I find uncomfortable is how do I look after myself today? Actually, what is right? Because at the end of the day, otherwise I'll just fall into burnout and then I can't help anyone. This strategy is good, but you can get really overwhelmed because mm. 
once you do start serving, everyone starts coming to you for more and more and you're just like, exactly like yours. And suddenly the bottle's just so filled up and you'll just get overwhelmed. And then that boundary is just, you have to really figure out what that is, that defense. Otherwise, yeah, it just it's like a tidal wave just comes at you. So how did you set the boundary of, hey, look, this is the people I can help and this is what I can do because you want to try and maximize to help, but you need to protect yourself. So how did you manage that piece? I think it's like getting into that rhythm with yourself. Yeah. And there is almost like no formula for kind of knowing what feels right. Because it is, it's that kind of weird spirituality, gooey, fluffy space that we can't quantify in many ways. I can't say to myself, I'm going to do 10 today mm, yeah, or yeah. 20 messages only because... Sometimes I'd have energy for five, sometimes I'd have energy for 55. Mm. So another person who I think speaks really well to, uh, you know, really accurately to this is a girl called Jenna Zoe, who really focuses on human design. And one of her main messages is what comes easy to you in life. And that is your sacred gift. And I guess with entrepreneurship as well, I think it's really easy to build a company that you absolutely love. And then you end up doing the jobs that actually are not aligned with your sacred gift. Do you know what I mean? You're yeah. in, suddenly you're, an ad, you're a creative and then yeah. you're just stuck in admin. Yeah. And after a while, you get really drained and you're like, God, why is this not as fun anymore? There's a whole like suite of tools that you've already taught us today on this podcast about how to be a better and happier entrepreneur. One of the things I want to talk about is a bit more about the shop side of things. So when you started, you raised the investment, you got the app, and then you mentioned an inflection point as to when things really ramped up and just went crazy and, you know, millions of downloads and, and whatever. How far had you been going along at that point and what actually led to that exponential growth? Well, I think the exponential growth really came when we pivoted to also servicing B2B. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we found this incredible B2B partnership that then ensured that the app was suddenly available to 100 million teachers, parents and students. Yeah, wow. And that's yeah. when it was this idea I'd woken up in the middle of the night with to suddenly five years later, we were exposed to. And bigger deals, right? Mm. Yeah, it was huge. And that's where I really saw the power of B2B actually in, you know, combining communities. And how that deal came about, again, was really serendipitously it was certainly not in front of a laptop just like firing off emails I was launching Pop and Suki in Shanghai and my investors at the time were not happy about it because they thought that this meant that I wasn't completely focused on happy not perfect mm -hmm. but being out in the world is some of the most valuable things that you can do for your business and I always think pounding the streets whether that just be going to industry events or just being out there talking about your idea, that is when serendipity can happen. Serendipity is very difficult to happen when you're at home. And I remember being in Shanghai and I met a guy and he said, oh, you know, what do you do? I said, oh, I do Pop and Suki, but primarily I've just launched a tech company that focuses on mental health. And he said, oh, you should meet this guy. I set up a meeting. Suddenly within three days, I was flying to Canada to meet the CEO to start the negotiations for this deal. Wow, that's quick. And, yeah. well, I know, it was, but it was, do you create your luck yeah, or yeah, is yeah. it lucky? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know, but it was a lucky moment and I couldn't have planned it. When you look back on the last few years of, of the company and stuff, you, you just announced the acquisition as well. Do you look back on it with sort of positive energy now? Or are you still sort of healing from the wounds of having to deal with 
the trauma associated with starting the company in the first place? I really look back on it with positive energy. Like going back there, I haven't, you know, after just sharing with you some of the things that happened, it even brings me back because in all honesty, I was learning so quickly. And I can't also blame it all on these investors. I was a very young, deeply inexperienced entrepreneur. Me now, I wouldn't have even let that happen. Mm, You know, I would have put the boundaries in place. I would have formed a relationship that was appropriate and acceptable. So I also, I'm going to take some of the blame here. Do you want to mean I'm not Mm. sitting here and say it was, no, I was probably a nightmare (laughs) to have invested in, you know, and I was, I knew what my idea was and I wanted it to do it my way. You know, I definitely had some learning curves that I, um, I shouldn't have done probably. So... It got to the middle and actually towards the end of the company, everybody had suddenly relaxed because at this point, and don't get me wrong, I hardly owned anything of the company at the time Mm. of kind of acquisition. So it's not like my life has changed. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't about the equity for me at the end. Happy Not Perfect to a point of being in service. Happy Not Perfect was bringing something to the world that I really thought needed to be in the world. For me, I do look back and think, well, that was an amazing life experience and it made me reevaluate what success means. I think in our culture, we can think success is only big house, big paycheck, whereas success has never really truly been that for me. It was, I set it up with impact in mind and I sold with huge impact in mind. That was a success. I remember when we had coffee and you told me about the acquisition. I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. You and and you I won. remember you won. Yeah, no, I was like, <laughs> you won, you won. But not 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 just from the acquisition side of things, but truly from what you just said, the impact that you're having, the millions of people that are going to be using this app and how it's going to grow. Now it's in the hands of another company, you know, and the, the exposure that it's going to get. And it started from that little idea that you woke your brother up with you know at 10 p.m and i, I if someone woke me up at 10 p.m i'd be annoyed i'm, I'm on your brother's page here i yeah, go to yeah. bed at nine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's incredible that's i mean would you do it again are you are you yeah i'm, I'm back already <laughs> yeah. with the, my next number company two. yeah is it number two no three. number three, number three. yeah, yeah. I'm back yeah. Next yeah. company yeah. and yeah. i think to myself god this feels quite masochistic you know kind of like going back in i've just just told everyone like being on yeah, really black hard girl, right? You're going into the arena with like a black, <laughs> going black in. Flow, yeah. uh, But, you know, even the fact that I'm sitting in front of two entrepreneurs now, I love the community of entrepreneurs. My dad is an entrepreneur. I just think it is a privilege to be able to create something that wasn't in the world, you know, before you came along. And, you know, I remember when I was little, my dad invented, um, him and his business partner invented the cling film cutter. Oh, wow. No the biodegradable cling film cutter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. We were taught to invent, you know. Yeah, it yeah. was, if you want something, go build it. Yeah. And yes, it's another up and down road. But if you can look after your mental health religiously, I think we can all do it. I think it's, and as I said, it, it's, it's a privilege. So I'm back building but I did take some time yeah. to just mm. to heal. So what are you working on now? Can you talk about it? Or Yes, yeah, so I'm building a company all around sleep health. And the reason I'm doing that is because obviously having, I guess since 2014 now, you know, just, oh gosh, eight years, having studied mental health and the approaches to mental health for eight years, I've realized that in many ways, I think we're too late 
in our interventional process. We are waiting until we get really stressed out to then start meditating or whatever intervention, any tool you're going to use. But I thought, well, how do we stop people getting to that point? How can I intervene at higher up the stream? And that's why I got obsessed with sleep health. Because as we all know, if you sleep better, you've got better relationships, more productivity, better health. Mm. It, to me, it's like the golden bullet yeah. of being human mm. is getting better sleep. And clearly, Dr. <laughs> Rupi, you are the king of this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so right now, what's the process? <laughs> you in the um, fundraising or like products fundraising. made? Okay. Fundraising, yeah. Okay. And I think, I mean, hopefully we'll bring a sample fundraising. for us? No. No sample? Okay. By the end of the week. So you start the company, EIS, SEIS, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming. And then you're just going to go, are you going to go direct to some initial investors? You're going to go crowdfund? Or is it going to be a blend? Like? We, well, going to investors that I've worked with before who I really love so going back to some of people that I really really trust and I found an amazing co-founder oh amazing which I am so excited about I think that's my other big piece of advice is co-founders are great when they're great at the time I didn't have that many friends who was doing similar things and so I think you know, talk about my mom. She was almost this co-founder in many ways. That I would, and she was a psychotherapist. So I could call her up and actually talk to her about the mental health content to actually just, you know, just complete moral support. But in this new business, Cuddle, I have an amazing co-founder. How'd you guys meet? When he was doing his past business in CPG. He's been yeah. in CPG for 10 years. Okay. Worked at Heinz, Baked Beans, oh, to Vitacotica cool. Water, yeah. set up his own fizzy drinks company. Oh, he's done a startup as well. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Scaled it in America. I mean, yeah, yeah. he was one of the best founders I had met in like eight years. And when I was in New York and he was in New York too, we met up because we had a mutual investor and they put us in contact. And I honestly think we both of us must have been in tears in our first meeting, like Aww. kind of sharing the struggle. Really? Cool. Right. And so we just instantly had this bond. And what's so strange is I've been waiting for him to finish. And um, anyway, so I reached out to him because I saw in his LinkedIn status it had changed. Like, new job or something and I thought is he now available? Time. <laughs> is he out of a relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I messaged him and I said would you want to collaborate on something? And uh, he responds being like yeah what are you thinking? And I said well I'm really interested in working in the sleep space because I'm obsessed with sleep health and he said this is so odd. And he sends me a picture and it's an entire A4 sheet of paper that says sleep recovery and there's an arrow and it says Poppy Jamie. No. no way. Yes. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. It's a goosebump moment, wasn't it? That's yeah, that's yeah. incredible. So I am a great believer in, this is why I think serendipity. I do believe that, I guess this is where my spirituality comes in. And actually that also helps me to deal with stress yeah. is I do kind of like, to use this word tentatively, whatever you, however you use it, but I give up to God. You know, mm. you give up to the universe. Yeah. I just, I put something into motion and you know, you know, like either something goes quite naturally and suddenly these serendipitous moments happen or, you know, this is not my first idea after Happy Not Perfect. I've come up with five others. I was going to build an, a community therapy app called Heartful last October and it was all going to be about group therapy. But it was sticky, built the deck, had a first investment meeting and it just didn't go. And so I know what it feels like 
when the world is showing you signs that this is not right for you and when the world is kind of giving you a bit of a kind of push forward. And this was a push forward sign to me when he sent me back that piece of paper. Before you go, I've made something for you. It's an ebook on five crucial lessons from creating startups worth $500 million. And it's just for the listeners of this podcast. Download it for free on our website, happymillionaire.club. The links are in the show notes. <laughs>